listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are we? All right, let's go. Mark chapter 16. We have spent the past 14 months in the gospel of Mark, and today we conclude our long and hopefully fruitful journey through this beautiful and probably first gospel that was written, Mark. And so we're going to look at some very interesting verses at the end of Mark chapter 16. And as you're finding Mark chapter 16, if, you're, if you don't have a Bible uh, and maybe, or maybe you forgot yours today, as always, you're welcome to use the Bible that's in front of you and the little rack in the chair in front of you. And, and if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, maybe you're not yet a Christian, you've come by invitation of somebody, maybe you're a young soldier at Fort Benning and you're just here, you know, checking this place out, checking out Christianity. We are so glad that you're here today. And we would love for you to take that Bible and to keep it. And by the way, you can be a civilian too without a Bible. You can keep your Bible as well. But anyway... Um, we would just love for you to take that Bible and keep it as your own. And if you're not used to you looking up uh, verses in the Bible, you can find the verses that we're going to look at today on page 853 in that Bible that's in front of you. Uh, well, listen, uh, we, I just mentioned military folks. I met a young military guy that's here for the first time this Sunday, graduated from Texas A&M, is a young lieutenant here. Made me think of Mitchell and Katie Myers, who are also from the nation of Texas, I don't know where they are. They're in here somewhere, but this is their last Sunday. Raise your hands real high, guys. Mitchell and Katie, um, they're getting stationed somewhere else, Fort Drum or Fort Campbell or somewhere like that, so, somewhere not Fort Benning. That's all I know. But th there's a young couple that has come, been here for about a year, going through basic course for Mitchell's um, armor course, and Katie jumped right in and was a lead for one of our children's rooms, served the church so faithfully and well. And friends, do we realize just what a great privilege we have? It's kind of like reverse missions. They come here, and then we send them out, and it's funded by the United States Army. And so praise God for that. But just we thank God for the Myers. Give them a hug um, as, as, as uh, maybe you have a chance at the end of the service. And if you see a young soldier that just looks kind of like he has a good haircut and he can run forever and do 100 push-ups, assume that he's hungry and invite him to lunch and get to know him and bless that young guy or gal while they are here, and um, we're just grateful for our military. All right, before we get into Mark chapter 16, a couple things. As I mentioned, we've been in this gospel for 14 months. What's next? Next week, we're taking a break um, from working through books of the Bible, and David Baum, who is a retired chaplain, came to Fort Benning some 20 years ago as a young infantry officer, spent about five years as an infantry officer, then he was a chaplain in our army, serving soldiers, preaching the gospel to them for 17 years, recently retired from the army as a chaplain, has now relocated to Columbus, Georgia, has joined Cross Point Church, and we know that with the intent that God is calling David and his wife, Marie, to plant a gospel-centered church here in Columbus, and Cross Point Church for this coming year is coming around David, kind of inviting him um, behind the scenes to be part of our team as our church planter in residence, and we're calling him the chipper. Put those words together, church planner in residence, chip church planner in residence, chipper. And so he's with us for this upcoming year. Lord willing, sometime here in the near future, probably 2014, 
he will launch out and plant a church and Crosspoint will come alongside and encourage people to go help him and be part of that church so that we can see not just that church, but Lord willing, over the decades, many more gospel-centered churches planted in Columbus. And next week, Dave is going to be preaching here. So um, buckle your seatbelts. David Baum will be preaching and he's actually going to uh, tag along on the end of Mark and go to the end of Matthew in this great commission and how it compels us to be part of planting gospel-centered churches in our area. So, so I would love for you to come. I'd love for you to invite people, maybe invite soldiers to that that might hear, a, might be just, their heart might be particularly open to hearing a, a military guy expound the scriptures. And then the following week, we're beginning uh, 1 Peter. And so we'll be in 1 P- Peter, Lord willing, for, I don't know, 12, 14 weeks, probably through the end of the year. So you can begin to read 1 Peter. Memorize some passages that stick out to you, and we're going to put some microphones on the floor, and anybody that may want to just give us three or four verses or something along the way of First Peter, we want to encourage one another to memorize the Word of God, and we're going to do that with First Peter. So, all right, let's get into it. Mark chapter 16. All right, we are confronted with a situation before we even read these verses. If you'll notice, very likely in your Bible verses 9 through 20 are bracketed, and there's probably a little footnote in your Bible. In fact, mine says, let me find it, verse, the little bracket, um, it says, boy, I need glasses, I'm getting old, I cannot read, it's a very small print, but it says, some manuscripts in the book of Mark at verse 8, and others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. And the reason is, is because the earliest manuscripts, most of the earliest manuscripts that we have, and we're going to talk about what a manuscript is, copies of the original Gospel of Mark, do not include verses 9 through 20. And so that has led to a great debate over the years about whether or not Mark actually wrote verses 9 through 20. And this is a huge debate, and it has... It's an important question that cuts to the very heart of the reliability of the Bible and whether or not we know that what we have in the Bible is the actual words written by the actual author. So um, we're going to work through that issue and, um, and, and then uh, and dig into the text. So let me, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your words as been read from Psalm 19 and prayed for us before at the beginning of our service, we know that they are trustworthy and sure. We can stake our lives on your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at these verses today, which are um, often disputed as to whether or not Mark wrote them, I pray that even as we look at that issue, that it would actually serve to underscore our confidence in the reliability of the Bible. And I pray that Christians would be encouraged today as we end our look at the Gospel of Mark. I pray that these past 14 months have been, have been an encouragement, have been fruitful for us to see the risen and victorious Son of God, the King, Christ Jesus, I pray that friends that are here in this room this morning that are not yet trusting in Christ, I pray that their hearts would be warmed and softened and that you would give the miraculous gift of faith so that they can see the risen, conquering King Jesus. I pray the same for 
those working and serving in children's ministry today as they minister the words of the scriptures to our children in the hallway behind us. Father, that you might open the eyes and the ears of some of our very young children so that today even some of them might trust in Christ for the first time and others would be encouraged in their young burgeoning faith. Help us now. Lord, I pray that you would glorify your name and that you would bring joy to your people as we look at your words and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read. These are some interesting words. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he, meaning speaking of Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right, here's my plan today. Okay, we've got to work through a few questions before we look at these words. And these four questions are about Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. So I'm just going to give you the questions right up front and answer them because we want to handle this issue about these words being bracketed here. Did Mark write these words or not? So question number one is, did Mark write verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16? We've got to look at some external and internal evidence that points us to an answer on that. Two, if not... Can we trust the reliability of the Bible? Because we are you know, putting all of our eggs in one basket that's saying that what we have as the Bible is what was actually written by the original authors. Which then leads us to question number three. If you've been around Crosspoint for some time, you know that we put a high emphasis on the providential power and sovereignty of God who's in control of all human history. So... <laughs> Why is this even an issue? I mean, why did God allow there to even be questions about Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? And then question four, what should we do with verses 9 through 20 as we answer these questions? And we'll work through it quickly and give some concluding thoughts. So I'm going to work through these, these questions real quickly and then get into these, this passage. Did Mark write verses 
9 through 20 of Mark 16. Well, there's, inter- there's external evidence that would lead us to think that maybe there's a question about whether or not Mark actually wrote it. The earliest manuscripts um, seem to point that a vast majority of them do not include verses 9 through 20. And so there's physical external evidence that, that really seems to point in the direction of that this was an add-on later on by the early church. And as you notice, as, as, as Wayne worked through verses 1 through 8, uh, which I thought was an excellent message that I thought was very helpful to, to be a sort of apologetic for Christians to equip them to look at the validity of the resurrection. And if you notice at verse 8, where Wayne ended last week, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. Boom. That's the end. That's the end of, of most of the early manuscripts of Mark, Mark's gospel. And so that seems like an abrupt and maybe even a bit awkward ending to Mark's gospel. And so the thought is, is that then the later manuscripts, the early church adds this sort of summary on verses 9 through 20. So we could be much more technical about this, but suffice it to say that the majority of the earliest manuscripts, and a manuscript is merely a copy of the original. So there's only one original of the gospel of Mark that Mark wrote or had uh, a scribe write for him as he dictated it to him. There's only one, obviously, original. And then everything after that is subsequently a copy. And so the external evidence seems to point that the earliest manuscripts of Mark do not contain verses 9 through 20. And then there seems to be some internal evidence as well. There's a bit of an awkward transition in verse 9. It it introduces Mary Magdalene as somebody who's new when she was also mentioned at the end of verse 15, uh, chapter 15, and at the beginning of chapter 16. So that seems like a kind of awkward, why would he introduce somebody that he has just written about just a few verses before? There's also some internal evidence of just word choices and grammar, that if we had the ability to read, and if we were uh, literate in biblical Greek, it would be very evident to us that there's many new words. And just like you can recognize, you know, somebody that's, you know, they're writing like maybe a loved one. And then if somebody else has written a letter for them and it's just kind of teachers, I think you probably can be aware, you know, you notice if maybe your kid, his a student has written something that's not theirs. Well, in the same way, it's just sort of very obvious. There's lots of new words, and there's a new title that Mark hasn't used for Jesus. He calls him the Lord Jesus, which he hasn't done previously. And there's a bunch of new grammar, new words, new syntax, sentence structures, stylistic features. So there's a a pretty high level of internal evidence that in the original language makes these later manuscripts that include verses 9 through 20 seem to be a sort of appendix, a sort of awkward transition and add on onto the end of Mark's words. So the external and internal evidence has led the vast majority of scholars, not that they are inerrant, not that they are infallible, but it has led the majority opinion to think that Mark probably did not write these verses. Now, there are people that love the Bible and love Jesus and are clearly Christians that would vehemently and very emotionally disagree with that opinion. I, quite frankly, am not qualified to come down very strongly on that opinion, other than the people that I have read 
the, the vast majority of the opinion seems to point towards that the vast majority of faithful conservative biblical scholars doubt that Mark wrote verses 9 through 20. So what happened? It's likely that the early church added these verses sometime later to compensate for what they perceived to be an incomplete ending to Mark. Why was the ending of Mark incomplete? Well, there's three kind of main reasons that have been speculated, and again, this is just speculation. One is that maybe Mark is writing to the church in Rome who the persecution begins to get amped up, and in fact, We'll read about that persecution as we go through First Peter. Some postulate that, well, persecution just ramped up and Mark was martyred before he could finish the gospel. Some speculate that it was the last page of the, the codex, which is a word meaning this, this, like this book, this the last page of the, of the book of Mark, that Mark had compiled. And over time, it was lost and maybe tore away. And some, confirm, some speculate that Mark intended it to be this way, that Mark has written in a very abrupt, sort of immediate style, and he began Mark's gospel very abrupt and immediately with Jesus' baptism. Remember, Mark doesn't start with the birth narratives of Jesus. He just starts with Jesus' baptism. And so they think in, in that same sort of style, Mark ends his gospel very abruptly, in that sort of style to sort of rattle the reader that now they must make a decision about the resurrected Jesus. I don't know. I don't want to speculate about what Mark's intentions were there. And again, the balance of the evidence seems to suggest that very likely, I'm not staking a claim in that, but very likely Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. So let's just, let's just go with that. Again, realizing that some of you may have different opinions and may be very passionate about the other thing. Let's just assume... Mark did not write 9 through 20, and this is then added on by the early church. If not, then can we trust the reliability of the Bible? Because do you see how this might undermine? Like, well, if, if that's added in, well, how, do we, how can we trust all this other stuff? I mean, can we be sure? What, what, what Was this other stuff just added on? Well, the resounding answer to the question, if we can trust the reliability of the Bible being the original, the, a copy of what the original authors wrote is a resounding yes. Let me just take you through very quickly the process of how we have our modern day Bible in English. The original copy of what the authors wrote, whether it's the Gospels or Colossians or, or Philippians or 1 Corinthians or whatever, even the Old Testament, is the autographs. It's the original. So at one point, there's a man named Mark and Paul and John and Luke and Matthew writing down as the Holy Spirit is guiding them through their personality, superintending, ensuring that in the original language that they're writing, Hebrew in the Old Testament, and then Greek in the New Testament, ensuring through his providential power that the human author is writing down, using that person's personality, exactly what the Holy Spirit intends to be the Word of God. And then that letter, or that book, is then that original autograph, that original Graph, original autograph is then copied, and every subsequent copy is a manuscript because the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, wasn't discovered or invented, not discovered, invented until the, like, what? wasn't invented until the 1400s. It's not like they were digging somewhere, oh my gosh, a printing press. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't invented until the 1400s. And so up to that point, they had to copy the uh, the Bible, or any work of literature. And if we look at the evidence, the manuscript, the existing, the still surviving 
early manuscripts through the first 1400 years from the first century when the authors wrote until the 1400s when the printing press is invented and then we can just put that baby on a Xerox and press go, we have an unbelievable amount of evidence and manuscript, existing manuscript or portions of manuscript for the Bible. In fact, in just the language of Greek that the New Testament was written in, there are over 5,000 manuscripts. Now, to be sure, not all of those are complete. It's not like Matthew to Revelation. But a vast majority of them are, are the majority of the New Testament. Some of them are fragments of it, but over 5,000 Greek manuscripts exist. Then, if you add the other languages, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, that, that the Bible was translated in in these early centuries, you have over 20,000 copies of those. So you have 25,000 copies, manuscripts, again, not complete, but many of them very full of the New Testament. Compare that to other books of antiquity, other histories, other works of ancient liter literatures. Uh, Julius Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars around 50 BC. There are only 10 copies of that. And the earliest copies we have of Caesar's, Ga Caesar's Gaelic Wars is about 900 years later. Whereas the earliest copies we have of manuscripts of the New Testament, some even say some of them date to the late first century, which would be like just a decade or two after some of these documents were written. Most of them in the hundreds, 200s, 300s, and 400s. But there is a very narrow gap between the date of these manuscripts and the date of the original compared to a large gap between every other book of antiquity. I'm sure many of you have heard this before if you've ever thought, if you've ever studied this, but the, so remember 25,000 manuscript evidences of the New Testament in Greek and then the other languages. The next book of antiquity that even comes, doesn't even come close, but the next largest copy number of a book of antiquity we have is Homer's Iliad which was written in 900 BC, and there are 643 copies of that. And the gap between when we think Homer actually wrote it and then the first manuscript that we have of Homer's Iliad is well over 500 years. So just think, let me just, I know I'm, these numbers and some of you are like, oh my gosh, picked a bad Sunday. <laughs> let me just give you a little football field analogy because I know you're a football congregation, okay? I know where I am, know your audience, we're in the South. Imagine 100 yards, imagine the goal line, okay? Imagine that being the time that the original author wrote what he wrote. And then 100 yards, the other end of the goal line is, you know, centuries later, 1,500 years later. If you take the goal line as being when Mark and Paul and Luke and Matthew and John and Peter actually wrote the books of the New Testament, picking up around the five-yard line, we start to find manuscripts and there's a pile of about five or ten on the five-yard line. And then on the ten-yard line, there's a pile of about a hundred or so. And then on the twenty-yard line, there's a, there's a larger stack. And if you looked all across that field, early on from about the five-yard line of the original goal line all the way to the end of the other field, you'd have stacks throughout those yard lines numbering over 25,000. Whereas if you looked at the next book of antiquity that, that has the most copies, you'd have Homer at the goal line of his starting point and then not until way past the 50-yard line in the 
the other side of the field, then you just have a scattering of about 643 copies. Friends, what does that prove? It does not prove, I want to be clear about this, especially for you skeptics or people that are not yet Christians. I'm not trying to beat you over the head and make you check your brain at the door. It does not prove that the words of the Bible are true. But it, it, it is massive and monumental evidence that we can be very sure that what we have is what Mark actually wrote and what Paul actually wrote and what Peter actually wrote. Now, it takes faith to believe those words. But friends, if we doubt that we have in the Bible what the authors actually wrote, then we can't be sure. But then, then we might as well cancel our subscription to the History Channel or National Geographic because every time they come on with some special about the, you know, the history of Rome, we should look at that with the same sort of scrutiny that skeptics doubt the Bible. Friends, it is we can be very, very confident in the reliability that what we have in our English translation, or if you're Spanish, or if you speak Russian, or if you speak Italian, or whatever, that what you have in your language translation is a very faithful translation of a text that has been supernaturally preserved in an embarrassment of riches compared to any other book of antiquity. Now, that doesn't quite answer our question. Why did God even allow there to be a question? Because it brings us back to, well, well, we think there's a lot of evidence that points that maybe didn't Mark didn't write verses 9 through 20. Well, let me stop here and say that nothing that we're going to look at in verses 9 through 20 changes anything in the Bible in any way. So let's just go with this thought that Mark didn't write these verses 9 through 20, that it was added on by the early church. And so is that going to somehow undermine our confidence in the Bible? No, friends. Here's my question, my answer to question three. Why did God allow there to be questions about these verses? I think, and this is just my opinion, okay? I'm just speaking as Brad here. I'm not exegeting the text of Scripture. This is just Brad's opinion. Underline, opinion. Maybe God intended for there to be some questions about this. Because the question may be, well, if God is so powerful and providential, he lost the last page. Come on. How can I trust in a God who loses the last page? I mean, a breeze blows and the, oh my gosh, we know that it blows away the last page. What are we going to do? No, I think that maybe in God's superintending providence and care for us, he intends for there to be some question about these last verses of Mark to shine a spotlight on the process by which we even get our Bible, which would then cause us to realize, okay, the fact that we even know there's an issue with verses 9 through 20 actually serves to underscore the amazing confidence in the fact that what we have is these, trans, these, these, these faithful copies of the original transcript. I mean, the fact that we know there might be a problem with these verses is actually evidence of the reliability of the process. And God allowed for a little appendix on Mark that doesn't affect the truth of Scripture in any way, as we'll go through and see to spotlight the whole process by which we get the Bible. Does that make sense? So what should we do with verses 9 through 20, and then we'll work through it? Well, first of all, no point of doctrine or truth of the Scripture is affected if we add or leave off these verses. And we see 
almost all of it, with the exception of maybe one little part that we'll get to, mentioned or referred to in the rest of the New Testament. So regardless of what you believe about verses 9 through 20, we can read it and benefit from it because it proclaims the truth of God's word and is a summary of the end of the other gospels in the New Testament, Acts of the Apostles. So my plan is to go through it very quickly and make some concluding observations. Okay? All right, let's look at it. Some interesting stuff in here. So verses 9, 10, and 11. It says that he arose on the first day of the week. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. We see that in Luke chapter 8, verses 2. This, this woman that Jesus has freed from demonic oppression. She went and told these truths. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned, they wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had seen her, they would not believe it. Verse 12, and after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. As they were walking into the country and as they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe it. This is just summarizing a major portion of Luke chapter 24. Remember where Jesus in the end of Luke chapter 24 appears to these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Some of you enjoy this ministry called the walk to Emmaus. Well, that is around what's happening at at that phrase, that word comes from this encounter that Jesus has with these two disciples. He just kind of saunters up next to him, sort of disguises himself. The resurrected Jesus comes, talks to these two disciples walking this seven-mile journey to Emmaus after his resurrection. And it says that he takes the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, and he explains to them all things concerning himself from the Old Testament. So friends, that tells me that the Old Testament is about Jesus, right? So the Old Testament stories, as you read the Old Testament, don't read them as sort of morality tales. Read them as stories that point to the coming King Jesus. So when you teach your children about David and Goliath, the point of the story of David and Goliath is not Johnny, see what David did? You can be like David, and you should be courageous when you have a bully in the schoolyard or when you're facing some trial, and you can be like David. No, that's not the point of the story of David and Goliath. The point of the story is, Johnny, you're like Israel off in the woods with your tail between your legs, you little scaredy cat. And you should be, because there's a giant who's going to destroy you, and it's called sin and the devil, and you have no hope, little Johnny. But there is a, a victor, there is a king coming like David who slays the, the giant for you, who conquers sin and death for you. So you're not like David, Johnny. Jesus is like David. And through Jesus, you can slay your sins as you trust in him, the one who has slayed your giants for you. Friends, read the Old Testament like that. And that's what Jesus, can you imagine that class on biblical theology from Jesus himself? Starting with Moses and the prophets. He goes and outlays the Old Testament. I mean, talk about, whoa, that'd be awesome. I want to talk to those two cats when I get to heaven. I mean, they're still probably like, whoa, man. I mean, thousands of years later, their head is still spinning from that little teaching session. Verse 14, and afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So here's the eleven disciples. Remember there were twelve. Judas falls off at the end. They haven't picked 
the beginning of Acts Matthias yet, so there's 11. And notice two things. Notice the normalcy. Let this be an encouragement to you, friend. Let this be an encouragement to the weak and faint-hearted among us. These men walked with Jesus. He predicted his resurrection. They couldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. These women come back and report to them that the tomb is empty. And he has appeared to them. They couldn't believe it and they wouldn't believe it. Doubt and hard-heartedness is part of being human. And notice also, and we'll see here in just a, a second, that believing in Jesus is not a matter of compiling empirical evidence. It is a miracle, a gift of faith. I mean, even after they see the resurrected Jesus, they're still scratching their heads. I am strangely encouraged by the hard-headedness of the eleven. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So if the early church in Mark did write those verses, friends, we can trust that because it's just a summary of what David will preach on next week in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then verse 16 of Mark 16, it says, now it's starting to get tricky, verses 16, 17, and 18. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will, not, will be condemned. So what's going on here? There's this interesting little phrase there where Jesus is, the early church is summarizing his teaching and saying that whoever believes, meaning whoever believes in Jesus' death, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his victory over sin, and his atoning work for their sin, and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So, is Jesus adding something onto salvation here? Is he saying that you not only have to believe in him, but you also have to be water baptized in order to be saved. What's, what's going on there? Because that's the only place, if this is scripture, that's the only place where that is said. Let me give you a principle of interpretation. The Bible never contradicts itself, okay? And so when you're reading a verse like Mark 16, verse 16, where it seems to maybe possibly say something that would seem to contradict other verses of the Bible, where it seems that maybe Jesus is saying that in order to be saved, you have to believe and be water baptized. Well, what does the rest of the Bible say? There are numerous places that speak about salvation is through grace alone and trusting in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace alone through faith. Romans 10 says that if you believe and confess in the risen Christ alone, you're saved. John 3.16, probably, no, not probably, definitely the most famous verse in the whole Bible, that whoever believes in Christ, just merely believes, merely trusts in his work, shall not perish but have everlasting life. So what's happening here with the early church, or whoever wrote this, adding on this little phrase, summarizing what Jesus is saying, that whoever is believed, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. What's going on there? Well, the principle of interpretation is, is if all of these other verses say this clearly, which is that we're saved by trusting in Christ alone, 
then whatever this verse that seems to say something maybe a little different, whatever it's saying, it's not contradicting those verses because the Bible never contradicts itself. So what is this verse saying? To, to understand that, we have to understand how, and this is very important for us as Americans, in the age of nominalism and cultural Christianity, where anybody can say they're a Christian because they just grew up in the South. The early church did not think of faith in Christ that way. They didn't think of it as merely a profession or raising your hand at an altar call or just having your name on a roll somewhere. The early church always coupled saving faith with a life afterwards that followed the profession of faith, a life that commended the profession of faith. And so the early church sees believing faith as going together with a transformed life that is most immediately in the life of a believer proclaimed through baptism in a hostile Roman Empire that in, in coming decades would kill you for being a Christian. And so in the mind of the early churches, they're not saying that we're saved by works. They're not saying that you have to be baptized in order to be truly a Christian. But they see saving faith as being so strong and being so clearly evident in the subsequent life of a believer that the New Testament and the early church had no category for a person who confessed Christ that didn't also proclaim Christ in baptism. Do you see that? Whereas, friends, this is an indictment of us. We do. I mean, if you just get a bulletin from somewhere or you just have a casual relationship or you just confess Christ, you can live however you want in the deep south in America. But oh boy, if you, if you have that altar call experience or you say you're a Christian, oh, oh, oh who's to doubt? Who's to doubt? He, he, he says he's a Christian. And the, the Bible and the New Testament and the early church, they didn't even have a category for this type of nominalism. So they're not saying that baptism saves us. They're saying, though, that a, a life that does not stand and proclaim the gospel to culture is something that we, we don't even have a category for. They're saying that the Christian life is a changed life and a life that has been disrupted by the lordship of Jesus, who now commands us to go and to proclaim the gospel and to live for him. Compare that with, uh, with Americans who in this last week, many of us were, I mean, we were more disrupted by the new iOS 7. If you don't know what that is, it's the latest little operating system on all things Apple. I can't believe this. I have to swipe the other way now. What's going on? I don't like the colors. Friends, I mean, come on. It's an indictment on us that our lives are disrupted by silly little things more than the gospel. Isn't it? I think what this verse is teaching us is that the Bible knows nothing of a life that has been saved that doesn't now center its remaining years on Jesus and his lordship and the proclamation of that. 
the Christian life is most fundamentally a changed and disrupted life. It is a life that has been seized and taken captive by the love and the authority of our resurrected and victorious King Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 17 and 18 gets even trickier. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. Or these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So there's five things here. Casting out demons, speaking in new tongues, picking up serpents, drinking deadly poison, and laying hands on sick. And the writers here, whether it's Mark or the early church, is saying that these signs will accompany those who believe. A couple things that we need to think about this. We see, all of, we see virtually all of these in the Gospels or in the New Testament. Casting out demons, we see that. We see the disciples and the early church doing that. In the end of the Gospels in Luke 10, we see it in Acts. We see it through the New Testament. Speaking in new tongues in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see this beautiful day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church to empower them for service. And we see these early Christians speaking in these foreign languages of the people that are gathered there as a sign and witness to them. And then we see Paul regulating the use of this spiritual gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So clearly we see this as a sign that God used to authenticate the early church. And we see Paul in Acts chapter 28 at the end of of, the, uh, of, of Acts there when he's on that island in Malta. We see a snake jumping out of a pile of wood clamping onto him and he just shook it off. And so we see him having authority over even venomous snakes. And we see people uh, being commanded to lay hands on the sick and we see God using his early followers even today to pray and that the prayer of faith we see in James 5 verses 13 to 16, 16 that God, in his kind providence, at time causes sick people to be healed as a witness of the gospel. One thing we don't necessarily see in the scriptures clearly is this admonition about drinking any deadly poison and it not hurting them. And I think probably what's happening is I read much on this because I wanted to figure it out is that the early church fathers, in particular one early church father, Ignatius, who pastored the church that Peter pastored in Antioch after Peter. He was an early church father. He, in his writings, warns the early church from a cult that was tainting and poisoning food and drink and mixing it with poison. And he possibly was writing to them, telling them to beware of this poison. Or a lot of people think that what maybe is going on here is this deadly poison is... A, a symbolic reference to heresy and that when the early church has the gospel, God will protect God's people from heresy. That's the best I can do for you there. I don't know exactly what's happening there other than to say that it seems clear that the early church or Mark wrote to encourage people that were going through demonic oppression, uh, threats from the Roman Empire, that God will give them power to preach the gospel and will authenticate it with signs. But friends, even those things we shouldn't sort of hang our head on. Listen to what Jesus says early on in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. He sends out the 72, this first little missionary journey where he sends out this large group of his followers. 
And in verse 17 of Luke 10, it says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But listen to this, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he says, as miraculous as these things that may happen in your life or in the early church or even in our day today, because I'm not putting God in a box and I'm not saying that God can't still do miraculous things because I believe that he does. But even if he does, friends, Jesus is clearly telling him that the more miraculous thing is not that a snake falls off a pole that somebody is healed when you, you pray for them or that some great sign happens, but the most miraculous thing is that God made you a dead sinner alive, and that's what you should truly rejoice in. So what can we say about these, these very interesting and confusing verses 17 and 18. Friends, these seem to be a description of the authority that God gave the early church and the apostles, not a command to us to necessarily try and do these things today. So, so if you have a family that comes from the Appalachian Mountains, okay, or somewhere, I'm not going to name a state because I don't want to get any emails, but this is not a command to make venomous snakes part of your worship service, all right? Snakes, no. Tambourines, maybe. But this is a description of what happened, not a command to do these things. Friends, that is silly, and quite frankly, I think the earnestness and the misguidedness of people that have done this through the centuries, and even still today, has caused sort of scorn. It's actually hurt their witness. This is a description of the authority of, of, and it's not a promise, friends. So let's not get caught up in the name it and claim it unhealthy stream of the church. Because even the apostles that write these things about how they will have authority are themselves martyred. Even Paul, who's the one that writes about his authority over demons and sickness and over death, and he, God uses him in a miraculous way, still he has to deal with some thorn of the flesh, whatever it was. So friends, God in his kind providence will give the early church and us at times power to authenticate the gospel. But friends, the point is never the sign. The point is always the miraculous miracle of God giving spiritual life and eternal life to a dead, hard-hearted sinner like me and you. And we end in verses 19 and 20. I know I've kept you for a long time, so let me read these two and then we'll... Three concluding thoughts. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, symbolizing his finished work. And Romans 8 picks up this image and says that Jesus is now, even now, interceding for his people. So think about that, friend. Think about that. Right now, you, the person who's going through a struggled marriage, who is dealing with a habitual sin that you can't seem to break, who's going through a terrible situation at work, the risen, victorious king is at the right hand of the Father, even now interceding for you, friend. And verse 20 says, and they went out and preached everywhere. So these people that were 
hard-hearted and scared. Something's happened if they, after they've seen the risen Christ. They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the accompanying signs. There it is, 14 months, the Gospel of Mark. Three concluding thoughts. Number one, friends, you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. You can trust that what we have is a very, very accurate translation of what Mark and Paul and David and Moses and Peter and the other 40 or so writers of the Bible wrote, that what we have is an actual faithful translation of what they actually wrote. Now, friends, again, does this prove that what's in the Bible is true? No, that takes faith. That's a gift. Only God can give you that faith. But Christian, you can be sure that what we have, and, and actually let the dispute about these verses, as I said, underscore your confidence. And let the honesty that the early church and that scholars even now today have, the fact that we're even having a discussion about this, should serve to bolster our confidence that the, the, the Christians are honest about situations where there's, where there's variances in the text. And you know, I forgot to mention this, but of all these manuscripts that we have, these 25,000 manuscripts, some of you say, well, are there errors in some of them? Do they all match exactly? No, there's many, 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 many differences in those 25,000 manuscripts. But here's the really encouraging thing. Of all those errors, 95% of the errors in those manuscripts are just grammar, spelling, you know, punctuation errors. So we can just kind of discount those and say, okay, that's not affecting the truth. That's just human error. You know, the scribe, I mean, if you had to spend your day copying stuff, you'd get tired too. Talk about second century carpal tunnel. I mean, come on, writing this thing down? I mean, that's hard work right there. So there's 95% of the errors in the manuscripts where there's disagreement in the manuscripts is just grammatical spelling errors. And the 5% are, some of them are intentional errors, right? So we, we even admit that, yeah, some of them are intentional, but we can spot when the error is intentional because the error is some... Uh, copier, somebody who's been tasked with transcribing it, who's trying to sort of insert themselves and, and fix up what they perceive to be a problem. Uh, a classic example is at the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24, there's a bunch of disagreement because there's a little line in there in the faithful text that says that Jesus did not know the time or the hour of his return. And a bunch of the early scribes and copiers of the manuscripts are like, wait a minute, that can't be Jesus is God, and so what's going on there? And so they edited that. But the fact that we can tell that they are different from the majority of the other ones shines a light on the fact that, oh, that, that particular manuscript in that point, is, is he, that's, the, that's the copier inserting himself. It'd be like this. It'd be like a teacher sending out a note to the kids, 30 kids in class, on Friday, I want you all to wear black T-shirts. Okay? Everybody, send it home, put it in a backpack, Send out an email, everybody, wear black t-shirts. And one little particularly independent, strong-minded child, maybe one of the boys in the class, says, I don't know, I don't think we should wear black. I'm going to wear a shade of gray. And so 30 kids come to school one day, 29 have on black t-shirts, and one has on a sh shade of gray. Friends, it's very easy <laughs> to determine 
which child didn't follow the instructions closely because he's wearing a shade of gray. And that's the way it is with even these intentional heirs of the manuscripts. We can tell, scholars can tell who deviated from the vast majority of the others, which again serves to underscore, friends, that you can trust your Bible. That doesn't mean that it doesn't take faith to believe what it proclaims, but you can trust your Bible. Christian, have confidence in your text that it has been superintended and providentially cared for miraculously by a sovereign God who has handed it down through knuckleheads like us through the centuries so that what we have in front of us is the words that his writers wrote. Two, believing in the resurrected Jesus is a miracle. I mean, come on. These 11 cats who were with him for three years, who saw him feed multitudes twice, raise a few people from the dead, walk on water. There are even some at the end of Matthew chapter 28 that seem to allude to the fact that he, as Jesus is ascending to heaven, it says, and even then there are some that still doubted. So Jesus has done all that he's done. He's fed multitudes twice. He's brought a couple people back from the dead. He's walked on water. He's healed innumerable numbers of people. And he's floating. He's floating. He's going up. And there's still some people saying, um, I don't know. I don't know. Friends, believing in the resurrected Jesus is a miracle. It's not a product of empirical facts. It's not because you were born in the South. It is because God in his grace has given you the ability that you could not do on your own. And it is eyes to see and a heart to believe and ears to hear. So anybody in this room who believes in Jesus should be humbled by that fact. It's not anything that you have done. All the glory for you trusting in Jesus goes to him. And it should also encourage anybody in this room who isn't yet trusting in Jesus because your natural instinct, because you're a human like the rest of us, is to think, what do I need to do? I need to muster up. I'm doubting. I need to muster up friends. It's not a matter of you bringing anything to the table. It's a matter of God. When he seizes your heart, he makes himself so beautiful that he gives you the very thing that he requires of you. Friends, that is grace all grace. Be encouraged by that. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus who gives what he requires. Eyes to see Jesus. And then thirdly and finally, the resurrection empowers and compels us to give our lives away to proclaim the gospel. It compels us to reorient our lives around God's people and the proclamation of the good news. It, it compels me to, to not see my house as my house, but God's means to bring people into, to share my stuff with, so that other Christians can grow in the grace of Jesus and be encouraged in the faith. It empowers me to see my salary is not my salary, but means that God has given me to feed my family and fuel missions. 
it empowers me to see that, hey, maybe God may be calling me to come alongside David and Marie Baum so I don't just sit at Cross Point for, for the next couple decades and soak it in, but maybe God is calling me. Hopefully not all of you. I mean, I'd like a church still here after David plants his church, but maybe he's calling some of you to come alongside and say, you know what? I need to be part of this. I need to go through the, the, the hard work of helping somebody plant a church because there are people in this city that would never come into Cross Point that I want to go to. I want to go to. It, it, it causes us to turn our lives upside down and not make ourselves the center of our universe, but the proclamation of the only news that matters, which is the risen, victorious king who saves. And it causes me to, to just orient my life around that one great truth, friends. What is God calling you to do? What's he calling you to do? What conversation, what sort of influence in your sphere at work or home, what is he calling you to do? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and your call to missions is merely to be a mother who preaches the gospel to your children because people aren't born saved. They're born sinners. And so maybe your missions work is to read the gospel and preach the gospel to your children and to be a positive influence on your sphere of stay-at-home stay moms who are discouraged and need encouragement. Maybe you're a soldier at Fort Benning and your sphere of influence and mission for the Great Commission is to merely say no to the broken sinfulness of infantry and armor culture and to, over the course of time, develop a silent witness that when the opportunity comes, you then have the ability to share with a friend about why the hope rests in you and maybe you invite them to church and maybe that soldier friend of yours comes and in his courage and hears the gospel and God in his kindness gives that friend the very thing that he requires of him which is saving faith. Maybe you're a businessman and your orientation is not just getting more so that you can retire at 60 and have stuff and golf and fish and blow your life away on recreation, but maybe your orientation is to be a witness. You see Synovus or Aflac or Tesis or whatever environment you find yourself in as God's providential setting, his mission field so that you in that place over the course of many years, begin to be a faithful witness for the risen, resurrected king. That's what the gospel of Mark calls us to. What's he calling you to do, friend? What's he calling me to do? Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the end of this beautiful gospel. I pray a few things for myself and my friends in this room that are Christians. I pray that in light of these words that we've read today in this gospel that we've gone over for over a year, that you would produce in me a strange mixture of assurance and confidence but yet that you would also give me a, a holy, divinely inspired discomfort with my life as it is now. And that you, by your Holy Spirit and the encouragement of my brothers and sisters in this room, that I and all of my friends in here that are trusting in Christ, that we would push on each other. That there are people in parts of our city that do not know you, that face 
eternal separation forever from you, and we cannot be okay with that. That there are people in other parts of the world that do not know you, and if they die in that state, face an eternity separated from you, and therefore we cannot be okay with that. And I pray, God, that as you give me assurance and confidence in the risen King, that you would also produce in me holy discomfort that would push on me and my friends in this room for the sake of the gospel and to all the world. And Lord, I pray secondarily for my friends in this room who do not yet know that news. In your kindness, you've brought them here today to hear this last message in Mark. God, would you give them eyes and faith and a heart to believe in Jesus? Would you do that? Would you do that? Would you, would you just by your sweet spirit, would the wind blow, would the wind of the spirit blow as he wills? And would he give a heart to believe and eyes to see so that whoever turns and trusts in Jesus will be saved. Friend, if that is you, you are a sinner, and you someday will face a holy and righteous God. And I am here to tell you that your only hope is to trust not in the merits of your own life, but in the only life that was perfect, the life of Jesus who came, who was God in the flesh, who came and lived as a man and laid down his life as a substitute to satisfy the punishment that should have been ours and rose again in victory over sin and death and the grave and all of its consequences and now commands you, friend, to turn away from trusting in yourself and to trust in him and to experience true life true joy in him. Friend, do that. I beg of you to consider that message. And if you need help, I, I realize that you may have a million follow-up questions, and I and anybody that you know to be a Christian in this room would love to talk further with you. But I plead with you, I plead with you to trust in Christ. And Father, I realize in the middle of praying to you, I just started exhorting these friends, but God, would you save them? Would you save them? And would you help us, Father? I pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.